just inviting us to think along with her or it. And that's that suffering is mutual. The earth is suffering. And our suffering, our agreeing to suffer with it, our agreeing to suffer along with that, is the earth's care for us. It, it will wake us up. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling and I have a wonderful new guest, Susan Murphy. Susan, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Podcast. Yeah. Um, Susan's been involved uh, with, uh, shall we say, planetary healing for a very long time or interconnectivity as well and is, uh, has been in the Zen tradition, Zen teacher for many years. Uh, and has a wonderful book of fire runs through all things that we're going to talk about a little bit. But first, tell me about your life growing up in Australia in what by the Barrier Reef. Mm, yeah, I mean your whole your childhood really informed what you, who you are now. Uh, I mean all of us, yes, but in this very particular way because uh, you are in this extraordinary environment. Yeah, that's true. Well, I did grow up in, I was born in Cairns and my early childhood was entirely there and it's actually called Far North Queensland. I've always liked the Far. Far. <laughs> it's Far, yeah. It's Far from what, you know, Far from the self-importance of the world in a way. Mm. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so as you say, the Great Barrier Reef is just off there, off the coast, the Behind that coastline, there's wonderful mountains with covered in <clears throat> very, very old rainforest, legacy rainforest. Oh. Um, and so <clears throat> that's a very potent place. It's very alive. There's um, volcanic soil, so everything grows and everything wants to live. And I didn't bother wearing shoes till I was eight. They just weren't needed. So Wow. It was just that sense of, you know, contact with the earth, contact with the wet mud, contact with the sounds and the smells. You know, when you get off a plane in the tropics, you smell it. It's, <laughs> the air is so full of life. And so that was a remarkable place to be a child, and there's no doubt it formed me completely. You know, it's made me, I suppose I have to say, it made me fiercely love the earth. Such an astonishing thing, the earth. Mm. Yeah. So what were some of the things, though, that opened you up? I mean, particularly, I mean, this is a very uh, unique combination of your commitment to Zen Buddhism and your commitment to the earth. What started mm. to form that? Was there any, I can look back in my own life and see special incidents that, yeah. experiences that, really made me, oh, okay, there is a way to relate with everything, not from this self-centered me, me, uh, yeah. from a broader viewpoint to a, a, a much more interconnected feeling. I didn't have those words then, but that's yeah. kind of what happened. Well, look, <clears throat> at a general level, the whole kind of process of being in such a, a kind of vibrant place was itself a kind of natural, it created a natural affinity with what I later discovered to be Zen, what I later discovered to be that whole cast of mind. It was already there in lots of ways, you know, but there were, or there was one particular moment when I was seven, that um, very, very ordinary moment. I excused myself from class and I needed to go to the toilet. And so I walked out into the playground. This is in Cairns, which incidentally right now is underwater from a mega flood. That's the way the earth is now. How far <clears> is <throat> it from you? It's not that far? No, a long way, a long way. Oh, a long way. Know. Okay, other yeah, side yeah, yeah. of Australia. Yeah, I'm right down in the New South Wales, which is southeastern Australia. Uh -huh. But anyway, on that particular occasion, I had an ex you know permission to leave I walked across the playground. I can remember hearing the nine times table being chanted from some classroom. <laughs> I, 
I walked not the usual way around, not the way that goes around to the front of the girls' toilets, but I, the way that everybody walked, which was this little pathway of desire. That's what town planners call it. That's the place where you tend to walk. You prefer to walk. It's not the official way. So it's a little beaten path of beaten by feet, bare feet, a lot of them. So walking through there and just, I don't know, about halfway down that little path, at the back of the most ordinary place in the world, you know, a toilet block. <laughs> Everything fell away in the most astonishing way. I was just seized by it. It, it. You couldn't move an inch. You wouldn't even dream of moving an inch. And it was a sense of being a kind of source of radiant light, flowing, flowing, flowing out into this mysterious but really totally trustworthy darkness and it was I was astonished and yet at some really strange level not even surprised as well it was like oh yes <laughs> you know and <clears throat> so I stood there as long as I could after a while I could see other kind of light swimming into the this infinite dark space and I knew them to be other beings mm. And it was like I was, the only thing I could say later when I tried to account for this to anybody was it was like I was a star because what else is some sort of body of, you know, light streaming out into everything? <clears throat> so then I obeyed the call of nature and <laughs> resumed I had to, you know, and besides it fitted. It wasn't separate from all of the above and all of the around. But I did later on, I was full of it. I remember riding home on my little tiny bicycle feeling, this is what we are, this is what we are, this is what it is. And I tried to tell my mother about it. She was in the kitchen chopping up carrots, as I remember. Mm. And she stopped for a moment and, and I said, Mum, isn't it amazing what we are? And she stopped and she said, Yes, it is wonderful that we we love each other, that we have each other, that, you know, she fell into the relative, whereas I was swimming in the absolute, I guess. Mm. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> But I just realised, oh, I'll put that away somewhere deep inside. It will never go away. And I went out to play with my sister um, in the afternoon light. So... <clears throat> That sense of it being sort of um, absolutely not just continuous with but indivisible from every kind of ordinary, so-called ordinary detail, it never left me. And so later on in, in a Zen moment of a session that's a seven-day silent retreat, very kind of strongly held space of, of meditation and concentration and different experiences open there and they linked up with that they they can they were different but they confirmed the same matter so I know I we did have this funny little um <clears throat> sort of ritual when we set off on our bikes myself my brother and sister the first person to remember to say, I've got Buddha on my handlebars. We don't know where this came from, but they were lucky and everyone was jealous. So <laughs> that's the only other connection with Buddhism from my childhood. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, it discovers you. You don't have to kind of carry some heavy weight of it anywhere. Yeah. But, you know, when you came back from that experience in the absolute and your mother said, when you said, well, this is quite a life or whatever, and your mother said, well, this is quite great. Look, we love each other and like that. Yeah. That's just, a for me, that was just, wow, okay, that's just a reflection of, of you in that moment, you know? And that that's relative nice. love is part of mm. that one as well. It is. That Thank you love. for that. I hadn't looked back at myself with my mother's eyes till you said that. Oh, well. A deeply loving mother, by the way. Yeah sounds like which uh this is more of what his holiness calls our call uh for the future is that our mothers develop the kind of compassion he said that i had 
with my mother, which is what you see now. And when that happens, generations will start to change. Well, that maternal instinct of love, it, it's very fierce. I know. I've got children and mm. two children. And it is, if we could raise that desire to defend the earth that we have towards our children, you know, if they could link up, yeah. we might be lucky in the end. Yeah. Now, uh, well, tell me how, how Zen came about, where you, it got formalized, obviously. Uh, into... Yes, it did. <clears throat> I think I tried different forms of meditation probably in my early, late, twen- late 20s, actually. And then round about early 30s, I heard that Robert Aitken, who's well-known Zen figure in American sort of panoply of Zen figures, he was coming to Australia supposedly for the last time. That turned out not to be the last time, but because it was technically the last time, he offered the possibility for anybody to come and speak with him for an hour. There was a sign-up. I heard about this and I had not walked into a zendo, but something told me, take this opportunity. And so I signed up for it. I was working on a film at that time because I've, I've made films and this was a film that was attempting to talk about a bit of a theme of my life in a way. That was, that was to, attempting to talk about the nuclear threat of, to all that I hold precious and that we must hold precious. And <clears throat> so I did have the pretext of I'll talk to this very wise, old, you know, Roshi uh, about that. But when we got talking, of course, we were talking about everything under the sun. I was really trying to discover whether I should practice in. I didn't know that until the end. And then I said, so should I take up Zen? And he said, I think you already have. <laughs> so I walked down the stairs from that encounter thinking, yes, I'll do this. This is, it wasn't even a, a decision at some level, Raghu. It was like, of course, again, you know, it sort of doesn't have a lot of me involved in that moment. Mm. Mm, yeah. I can vouch for that myself. Same exact thing happened. Mm. Led to India. Uh, there was just compulsion that I had no mind whatsoever. There was no doing. It was just... I have to add the word luckily there. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. good karma. Um, but then someone who I am aware of, John Tarrant, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us how you met up with him, because that seemed to be a, a gigantic influential moment. Yes, it is. Well, that was in a very modest setting because it was in a garage at the back of a quite modest house in, or former shop actually, in inner city Sydney, which by the way, we moved to when I was eight. So I, that sort of had a very city influence in my life as well. Mm. And so in inner city Sydney, in a small house and out the back was a garage where there was a three-day retreat, non-residential retreat. I came every day. And at a certain point, I had what we call doxan, which is face-to-face interview with a teacher. So when I walked in, it was sort of like walking into a cave. This is sort of a with a candle and a whole lot of straw matting piled up in the corner. You know, that honan grass straw matting that was partly on the floor as well. So it was dusty and musty and funny and yet riveting as well. You know, I'm sitting in front now of a Zen master, whatever that is. And he said pretty much the question that must be asked, which is, um, why are you here? Hmm. What are you, implicitly, what are you looking for? Why would you be here? And I said something like this. I said, I'm... I know there is this taste of water that is beyond judgment and I have to taste that water. I feel like it's in the deepest, wildest part of myself. I have to taste it and make it clear to myself, you know. And he said, oh, that's a a pretty good reason. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. But it's interesting looking back at it now that it was an image in my mind of probably my childhood in a way, you know. You could kneel down and drink from the creeks in my childhood, no problem. Mm, really? Yeah. Mm. Wow. So I got to say, uh, I mean, just first of all, let me just uh, read the opening quote that you have from a man named Barry Lopez. I don't know who that is. In this moment, is it still possible to face the gathering darkness and say to the physical earth and to all its creatures, including ourselves, fiercely and without embarrassment, I love you and to embrace fearlessly the burning world. Yeah. That that's, spells out what, what, what's in this book, basically. Uh, but then when you read a, a little further, and this is the very beginning of the book and, and the realities of this burning world, because you experienced it with, was it two, 2019 and 20, the forest fires in Australia. Yeah. Which, you know, we are aware of because of digital media. Um, but I only recently, um, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of the Maui fire. That, mm, of course. Uh, yeah, 100 people died and, and burnt down, you know, a good part of a town there. Famous place, yeah. Lahaina. Anyhow, we, I just came back from there. And because... Uh, we were holding retreats there for many, many, many years with Ramdas, and uh, and continued after he left. And they people that you know, there's a lot of controversy about people coming back to Maui, where people whose houses burnt, they had nowhere to go, and there were some, many of them living in, on the beach, and people living in houses with twenty people in one bathroom, you know, really tough mm-hmm. stuff, and. Uh, but the, uh, that place where we used to go, they, they said, please, please don't cancel. We need to support our people. And so that and other uh, invitations, how we say, from people. Because, you know, our thing was to do something that would be an offering, a healing offering to the people. And we had wonderful teachers, Jack Cornfield, who I, I bet you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there off we went. And then as you come in to Lahaina, the extent of it was so beyond anything I had understood it to be. I thought it was in a more confined space right on the uh, ocean front. But it was all the way on the way to where we we're going, which was about 15 miles away, mm-hmm. uh, 10 miles away. Uh, and it was... Uh, the experience of it, of being in, it basically, a, it was like a graveyard. Just spread out over enormous swaths of, of land and burnt hills and so yeah, on. No. All stuff you're familiar with. Uh, just all to say is, uh, this is part of our plight, I think. Oh. In terms of waking up, seeing it, you know, from afar and getting, you know, inured to the sufferings is, is I think, the lot, especially in, I mean, it's vastly changing because of the breath of which this burning and this deluge is taking place. And, yeah. Um, but I think that confrontation that's more visceral has some potential to wake up more people, I think. Because it yeah. happened to me, and I'm not an unconscious person, but I am part of that whole fabric of as long, you know, the me, me that wants to feel comfortable and rejects any kind of discomfort and so on that's in all of us, especially in the West. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that wake-up call, I think, is way past due and is coming in his here. Yes. I deeply agree with all of that. And it's also interesting to see, I'm not quite sure what happened on the ground there in terms of the local community, but there's no doubt that, first of all, a crisis on that scale, when it's in your face and coming towards you, 
it's inarguable. At last, there's something that is inarguable, right, about what's going on. Well, that went on in Australia for nearly seven months, that fire, mm. that burning. Mm. And <clears throat> even though you say you only encountered it digitally, in fact, you would have breathed some of the remains of all those creatures and trees because it travelled three times around the world. That yeah, great, that. great cloud of funerary remains in a way. Everybody shared it and the ash from it fell into the ocean and caused a huge, vast kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, you know, sort of, anyway, it poisoned the water, you know. And this is this is something that can't, it's not confined. We know it's not confined. We're sharing it. Uh, mentally, emotionally, through the grief we must be feeling, even if we constantly turn away from it in a foolish way. The grief, of course, is full of love. You can't grieve something you don't love. So, you know, the healing we have to find comes from the place of what we fear and grieve. The ability to heal comes from there, has to come from there and will come from there. Constantly fear it will be retarded, so easily retarded by the next thing that happens, yeah. you know, the yeah. strong visceral effect, and then the next thing that happens. But the community thing was so strongly woken up here, even in advance of the fires, there was a sense that this community is it's a rural community. Kangaroo Valley is the name of this area, and it's a very wide and very beautiful semi-enclosed uh, space with rainforest and very lush rainfall and so on. That community was really kind of interconnected in a conscious way before the fire came into the valley. And it was a vast fire front. It was about 30 plus kilometres wide, you know, and it had come slowly, slowly, slowly. Will it come to us? Yes, it's steadily coming. It's taking that township, it's taking these forests, it's, you know, it just kept eating its way yeah. up the coast towards us. And <clears throat> when it crossed into the valley, it jumped across a vast river to do so. We knew that one particular night, we knew this is going to be probably the night, having done everything we could for the last three, four weeks nonstop to prepare the house and the sender as well. We then decided we had to evac. It was best to evacuate with only one road out. So, and there was no assurance. It was a catastrophic fire warning day, and there was no assurance that any fire fighting equipment could get to us. So we did everything we could, and just before we left, <clears throat> I actually did something a bit strange. Two things, in a way. I took, I put all the cushions, the meditation cushions, laid them out in the centre thinking of all the people who have ever sat here and loved it deeply, and I thought, they they can be here. They'll, they'll help fight this, you know, their presence. Then I did something that I was taught by an Indigenous elder, Min Maya, many years ago, and I've done it quite often since then, when it, when there's a pressing need to find out what's, what is trying to get through to me here, what, is, what do I need to know about this? What does it need me to know about this? Something sort of like that. So... It involves going out, finding a place that invites you to sit down on the earth and to then ease your fingers a little way into the earth very tenderly and then to speak out loud so you can hear yourself fronting up to this moment and you say, hello, mother, like mother earth, hello, mother, this is your daughter and you name yourself speaking with you. What do I need to know? And you wait, you keep your fingers in the earth and you wait. And Rocco, it's really strange because you get a sort of tingling in your fingers at a certain point. It's almost like you wait for the response and then something forms in your, deep in you and it's words. And the words this time were, <clears throat> keep in mind we had masks on, we'd been suffering huge smoke inhalation problems for about a month, two months. So we were suffering and the heat was extreme and there was danger and so on. The earth said, my suffering, sorry, your suffering with me is my care for you. Hmm. 
And it was very interesting, you know, I'm a person well-versed in columns and here was the beautiful poem from the earth, you know. So I was strangely consoled by that, deeply mm. consoled by it actually. It felt like we were in partnership in some way, you know. The earth's inviting us to think along with her or it. Mm. And that's that suffering is mutual. The earth is suffering. And our suffering, our agreeing to suffer with it, our agreeing to suffer along with that, is the earth's care for us. It, it will wake us up. It is waking up the best as best it can who and what we really are. Yeah. Mm. In, in this uh, Maui thing, um, a couple of... Uh, Kahuna came, uh, Maui, Shang, mm. and they came and, and they talked about their relationship to the earth, the relationship to these islands and, and so on, their history. And, and then they brought somebody up, an elderly lady, hefty lady, who was right in the fire, in the only road to get out, one road, same as what you just described. And... They had to get out of their car because this was just incredibly fast because the winds were so high. And they had to get over a wall to go to the ocean. Got to go in the ocean. It's the only way you're going to survive. And she could not do that because of her size and her age. And uh, she called a skinny young guy came up and said, don't worry, auntie, I'm going to take care of and she's looking at him, I don't know if you're going to be taking care of anything here, buddy. <laughs> but he did, you know, and in those moments when these extreme moments, weird stuff happens, he got her over that wall and into the ocean and stayed with her and got her out. And she yes. just ended her story by saying, and this, all that really counts, she said, is unconditional love. And um, and I went up to her afterwards and to greet her, and I said, I mean, at the end there, you sounded like Ramdas, who talked about unconditional love all the time. And she said, Well, I met him a number of times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyhow, but that's the reality of how people come together under these conditions, and then yeah, it can be really remarkable, and it goes beyond what we thought we were and could do and would do, and so on. It really yeah. does. It's a discovery yeah. moment. Yeah. Crisis is a great, dis and uncertainty yeah. is a, a place of discovery. Mm. Mm. Well, not knowing that is, is spread throughout this book. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm familiar with it because of uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman, who walked mm -hmm. around, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> You know, we have a bird around here. It's probably a pigeon of some kind. There's millions of kinds of pigeons. But we call it the what bird because it flies in and it says, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, i got to record that. Yeah, that's a meditation. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, so uh, the combination here, I mean, to me, uh, you talk about... Uh, Zen, of course, throughout the book, but not just the abstract Zen. Of course, there are many koans in 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 this book, but uh, down to the nitty gritty, a bit of the the psychology of who we are as humans and how to transform ourselves. Um, and uh, I, I myself just I have a friend who's a, a podcaster, Duncan Trussell. He should have you on 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 his show. I'm going to recommend it because. I think his audience would really enjoy. But uh, we did an audiobook from the movie of me to the movie of we. Mm -hmm. And using ourselves as examples of the ignorant Mimi, and then from our experience and teachers and so on, how, yeah. how you can, can connect back and move beyond that. Uh, so here, um, this to me is the core of what, you know, when people say, well, what can I do? You know, that's the common, well, what, what is there to do in one little person in terms of 
you know, this huge tide of calamities and so on. And, uh, and here uh, you quote the Japanese Zen master Dogen, when you know the place where you are, practice begins. I think this, this will go a long way to, for you to parse that, would you? Okay. Well, of course, when he says, when you know who you are, that's the first koan in a way. Who, who is this? And so Where you are, not just who. Well, sure, but if, you, if you're going to have someone called you sitting around the place, yeah. <laughs> a place, <laughs> then you have to, I know, the two fundamental koans are who is this and what is this? Mm. The place where we are, which is a, beyond astonishing Okay. It astonishes me that people aren't astonished more all mm. the time. But, but this didn't have to be here, you know. The cosmos did not have to be here. We don't know where it came from. Here it is. It's, it's, that's the first miracle. The second miracle, of course, is that rocks, inanimate matter became living and then that living matter became conscious and consciousness enough to look back at the beginning of the cosmos and dream our way into it, that sort of thing. So this sense of thinking along with the place where we are, how does that happen? The whole I'm deeply involved, have been through my teaching life with Indigenous um, mm. I call it wisdom, call it knowledge, call it law, call it dreaming. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't really matter. It, but it is very much when you know the place where you are, practice begins, response begins. Practice doesn't begin until you know the place where you are. In, you're just in a, a kind of anteroom of dream at that point. <laughs> you're kind of adjacent to where and what you are. Is that, <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a character in um, a James Joyce story. In Dubliners, I forget his name, but Mr. So-and-so always lived about seven inches from his life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we, for safety's sake, we live a little way off our life. It looks very immortal. You know, we're walking on a cliff edge of birth and death. That doesn't look safe. So <laughs> let's live a little way off. So that happens and we have to smuggle ourselves back into reality by, by practice, by conscious practice. So when you know the place where you are, practice begins. So the place where we are is holding a continual conversation with who we are, what we are. It's letting us know. It is a mirror in which we can see ourselves if we really see past ourselves. And Pogan <clears throat> also said, you know, when you go up and confirm the 10,000 things with your ordinary, well, he doesn't say ordinary mind, just going out and grasping and saying, that's that and this is this and that's opposed to that and so on. He said, that is delusion. When the 10,000 things, that means all that's here, every detail, can come, comes forward and confirms the self, that is realisation, that is awakening. Mm. So when you know the place where you are, you're, you're, you're a complete fit. You, who you really are, what you really are, is a complete fit with what this really is. Mm-hmm. And practice stems from there. It opens there. One lovely sort of neolo- neologism that was coined by a remarkable um, cu- couple of old Indigenous teachers when they were training up a man called Victor Stephenson, who is a fire specialist, that is cool, uh, regenerative fire, the kind of knowing fire that is reading the country, listening for what's poking up and speaking about what needs doing here as to burning, you know, regenerative and also preventive burning, burning that will mm-hmm. soften firestorms, soften wildfire if it should occur, or even keep it at bay. So Victor was walking out to do some practice firework with his old teachers and they said you have to do the praction i love the fact that this is practice and action just melted together yeah yeah the oh, praction cool. <laughs> it is cool because that's 
That's what we two-legged ones just have to start cottoning onto, the fraction mm. yeah. of being here on this earth. Yeah, yeah. You say, Jane's deep inquiry into the self is a merciful dissolving of what you are into all that is. And so that's the initial wake-up or realization or compulsion in my part and yours without any kind of thought that that had to happen and it was happening and you just so the intent was already there without you having to develop any kind of intellectual thing around it right? mm. yeah, I guess so, yes because uh, um, that's a kind of bone knowing it mineralizes your bones you don't yeah. sort of you don't resort to thinking about it it thinks you after a while yeah yeah, and it's just a huge magnetic pull, which is what I experienced uh, yeah. way back when. Well, Ramda, in, in terms of that um, beautiful praction, that word, <laughs> I love that. I'm going to steal it, I think. <laughs> uh, it's not for sale. It's only for giving. <laughs> <laughs> but this is essentially what Ramdas did a lot of teaching about because he was very much into social action and on many different levels. And he talked about mm. nuclear was definitely one of them. And mm. at the same time, he would say, no use going out and protesting and throwing your, flailing your arms and yelling epithets, okay, and being angry. Mm. Um, get your heart straightened out. Then you'll be able to, uh, to really... Uh, connect with people in an honest way and in a heartful yeah. way. And But the thing is, you can't, okay, well, I'll go into a cave and work on that. I'll get back to you. You can't do that. It's a matter of, uh, we can do things on more than one plane at the same time. He used to say that, plane of consciousness. So that's why here's the perfect word for what he was expressing all these years, practicing. Yes. Practice and action. <clears throat> there is, in a way, you could say there's no such thing as enlightenment. There's only enlightened action. So until it's until it's walked into the world, it, it's just a bauble for yourself, you know, and we're not here for ourselves. We're, we're here to go past ourselves. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, and the praction, the praction is such a, a kind of rich world. There's also something Robert has said. Um, the, uh, he was at that time, I think, the poet laureate of America when he said this. Not that that matters. But he said, um, just a kind of, wasn't a poem, it was just a statement. He said, you know, we are what needs to be protected. No, we are the only protectors uh -huh. in terms of the, the state of the world. And we are what needs to be protected. And then he added one more that sort of turns it way around and says, and we are what it needs to be protected from. Hmm. And so the praction would be holding all three at once because they are all states of taking care. Hmm. But they have to face in all those three directions and be ready to do so, you know. At one point you look at that and you think, oh, if we have to be protected from it, we're we're sunk, you know, we have, haven't got much chance because are we such a diabolical influence to the extent that we are aliens on the earth or act like them, you know, as though this, as though this is sort of an unknown planet, then, yeah, we that that's a really big area of the waking up that has to happen and the reinvention or discovery of what a human being really is. And I can't help but thinking that, you know, that... Exactly, that, that's those, that three-part kind of understanding is embedded in every part of Indigenous awareness here, which is 60,000-plus years old, continuous. And so it's been formed, shaped through at least two ice ages, well, one ice age and the aftermath that we're in now, you know, this, this 10,000, 12,000 years of what were very very pleasant settings for the climate. <laughs> we decided to um, not worry about that. Mm. 
So country, you know, there's this word country that's used in Australia, which has a very particular meaning. It does, well, it has a vast panoply of meanings. It does not mean countryside. It does not mean environment, you know. It is actually a living, profound relationship, which actually is something like the earth thinking along with us, you know, growing quiet enough and transparent enough that the earth can finally think along with us. And the dreaming, as it's often called, you can hardly separate the dreaming from country, which has a capital C, by the way, wherever it occurs, country. This country is alive, you know. It's alive, utterly alive. Every detail, every particle of matter of country is alive and as alive as we are and actually not in a dissimilar way. (laughs) So that's the sort of starting point for walking into country and just as you have to with with meditation and with any form of realisation, you don't barge in. You can't barge in to it. <laughs> you have to wait, sit down quietly and wait to let to let yourself be invited in, to finally allow yourself to be invited in. And then the conversation opens up and country is speaking with you and country's like the oldest ever ancestor, the most revered oldest ancestor. So it has this sort of human earth, um, you can't tell one from the other (laughs) in country. Mm. And, of course, you have to be very aware in country not to be the one it needs to be protected from. So that's where all care for country arises. You care, you make, you watch yourself closely, you watch your mind. It's so close to the Dharma, you know, so close to what you share and I share in slightly different ways. And so you watch your mind closely, you hold yourself uh, with respect towards the place where you are. You respect it and you care, care for country is another phrase that is a beautiful. Once you understand what country is, care for country is letting it also care for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that when you dug your hand into the earth and and the, that particular, that struck me, right, the, yeah. the, that combination of suffering for the earth and that is the earth's caring, that you are yeah. awake. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. so beautiful. Tell, tell us about uh, meeting up with... I mean, in particular, one indigenous man and others, but how did, just uh, like to hear more visceral you, how did that happen and what was your experience initially meeting these people? That's a long, deep story. And it actually began when I, I had been working with a man who was very close to death and was very, very indignant about it Mm. and was gripping on to life you know, with white knuckles and in rigid pain as a result. And he asked me to teach him to meditate and I did what I could there, but he really trusted me. And at a certain moment I had to leave the hospice where he was to go and make food for my children, actually. And I said, look, Graham, while I'm gone, can you just look towards your death and see what you see? And he agreed to do that. And so when I came back, his face was just streaming with silent tears and he was in an amazed state and he said it was astonishing. He had a a vase of flowers on his tray table in the the bed, hospital bed. They were zinnias, bright, bright, orangey, powerful sort of flowers. And he said, it was like those flowers opening in my face. And he said, no, that's wrong. No, no, no. I was that opening. I was that opening, you know. And he actually died a a day later. He let himself die. And that night he had a wonderful um, meal with his dearest friends and then listened to his favourite music, drank his very best bottle of wine. (laughs) 
So I went to an event that actually had someone who came at the last minute by invitation, and that was Uncle Max Harrison. I've dedicated the book to his memory. Dula Munman is his given name. He's a fully indigenated, in, sorry, initiated man, which is rare now because of mm. the profound interruptions of, mm-hmm. of us. And <clears throat> yes. Mm. So he was offering a walk, just a teaching walk. He does teaching walks. You walk out into the bush, into the trees, the forest, and whatever pokes up for attention, he stops there and, and teaches. And so it could be anything. One, I remember one of the moments, we only got about 200 yards on that walk in three hours. <laughs> teaching in all directions, you know. Um, but there was a little seepage of water across the path we were walking and he said, stop, look at this, look at this. And so we look and we go into the, the fact water on the earth, you know. And then he said, you know, where this water coming freely like this what is it? And I said, it's a sacred site. He said, yes, this is a sacred site. And look, we, we, I got to know him on the three hours and at the very end of it, he actually conducted a, he said, I'll I'll teach, I'll do a teach. I want to offer you something about death. This is what we do when there's a a funeral. And he, he drew onto the ground. The ground is the place where teaching naturally takes place. And what he drew was the pathway, the fires that are lit and the pathway into the place where the body is. And after he drew it, he said, what do you see? And what we were so clearly looking at was was an egg awaiting fertilization. You know, mm. <laughs> it was it was a it was dramatically obvious suddenly once you shift consciousness, you know. And so I was very moved by that. I, I said, look, I've just come from a death. And that really bonded us, you know, the fact that we, he, he immediately saw where I was. And so for the next 25 years, really, we did a lot of walking and talking and teaching together. I walked in country with him many times. He came and... um Ah, we taught alongside each other, but I didn't say I'm teaching what he's doing and he's teaching what I'm doing. We just let them sit alongside each other. You know, Zen, Dharma, Indigenous, Dharma, mm-hmm. Law. They both, Dharma means law. So this was a really rich kind of collaboration, friendship. Uh, he was just deeply my na- a natural teacher in this space. I just found him so generous, so uh, he died of COVID and I, it's oh, a terrible oh loss. Yeah. Mm. Sorry. Sorry. I know. Jeez. Yeah. We lost him to the most, to the other pandemic, you know. There's two pandemics ranging and raging and that was one. And the other one was all the madness that raged with it, you know, the... the confusion and the conspiratorial yeah. madness and so on. But, look, that was um, a lifetime of 25 years of, you know, being deeply connected. He'd um, call up and it's I, he wouldn't say who he was, he'd just say, how the bloody hell are you? <laughs> what? I didn't get that. Okay, and no, it's very Australian. How, oh. to, how the bloody hell are you? How the oh, how the bloody but, hell well, are I, you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we go from there. Just stop in the moment, right? Just stop your moment. Yeah. So I think if anyone reads the book, they will find him very present. And there yeah. was one wonderful thing, a kind of koan that he offered at one time on one of those walks in country, and we were with a party of people called from a group called Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation. Hmm. right, trying to heal all of the above. Well, then at a certain point on that walk, he turned around to everybody, stopped everybody in their tracks and said, look, I don't hold with this word reconciliation. 
everyone was sort of, okay, it was a deep moment. And then he said, how can you reconcile something when there's never been a relationship in the first place? Hmm. So you can't have reconciliation without there being conciliation, obviously. Then he held that, he reached down, picked up a handful of earth and held it out and he just said, I tell both mobs, and that's another very indigenous word, mob. Um, you can just say mob, meaning all of the indigenous body of people here, mob. And he says, I tell both mobs, reconcile with this. You know, reconcile with this handful of earth, which of course is full of life itself, but that's not the point. He's picking up the whole earth when he says that and says, reconcile with this, because at that point, all the matters needing conciliating dissolve into each other. If we reconcile with the earth on the way to that process or to that, it's not an end goal, it's a continuous goal, then nothing, none of these oppositions and and fights and, and disasters sort of conspiracies and so on, they don't hold up against that process. It's a, such a deep healing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You were very fortunate. My God. I Susan, know. I know. You walked with someone like that for 25 years. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. Um, coming home takes place in uncertainty. I love that. Even by means of uncertainty. The times are always uncertain until we cease longing for certainty. And then they become truly interesting. The beautiful lunacy of not knowing, of relying on uncertainty, is an act of faith in what is, minus all the bargaining. That's <laughs> really great. Can you hear the prayer in that? Yes. <laughs> the sober recognition that we are slipping into an ever more dangerous place may be the first time on earth such a feeling can be said to be universal, nudging every single human being, making the very word earth into a prayer on the breath. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good stuff, Susan. <laughs> I, I don't think it's too bad. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my heart is in that at every mm. point. Mm. And it's interesting to say home because, you know, it is actually a process to be fully at home. But if un not knowing is a state of welcome, you know, it's a welcoming state. There's actually a lovely koan about this which, in which someone comes to Jojo and says, when difficult times come to visit us, how should we meet them? And he says, welcome. It's mm -hmm. the whole answer, welcome. Mm. And of course, when you are the welcomer, intrinsically you're at home. You're the one welcoming people in. So that's the host position, you know, in, a relation, in the relationship to what is happening, what is frightening, what is whatever is going on. You by welcoming, by coming to meet, not turning away, coming to meet. So as the host, you're on home ground already and whatever is coming to meet is a guest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't invite guests to stay forever. <laughs> <laughs> you let them pass through. And <clears throat> so you have that kind of, it's a different balance in the equation. You are now intrinsically at home if you can welcome and so that seems to me the base of the most teaching and indigenous teaching, dharma teaching, every form of waking up is discovering yourself to be in the place where you are and utterly at home, a complete fit. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it is a powerful place because none of the creative moves can ever arise unless you're, it's coming from that not knowing. You know, what we think we know is generally pretty, first of all, limited. Secondly, 
second rate, a lot of it. Um, it's also stale and it for it fitted other moments, but not this one. So this moment has never happened before. This breath has never happened before. Mm. So not knowing is the live edge of consciousness. It's alive because you've let all suppositions be put aside. That's an act of courtesy to what towards what's going on. It's a kind of generosity, a kind yeah. of courtesy. Mm. Humility as well. Yeah, yeah. Lovely word because it's got the earth in it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Humus, yeah. humility. Um, we don't have much time left, but I've got to uh, read a little bit of something. And I'm assuming it's it's a, a story. Uh, you have the codas. It's one of your codas, which are it's a monk comes to Zhaozu. It's that Zhaozhou, Zhaozhou, I never heard of him before, and says, "What is the sangha?" A monk comes to and asks, "What is the sangha?" So everybody, satsang sangha community, mm-hmm. and he replies. What else is there but it? And so you say, while well, the immediate meaning of the word Sangha is the community of practitioners through Zen eyes, it cannot possibly stop there. The community of an awakened heart mind radiates out to include all living things. And in a world as dynamic as this earth, quote unquote, all living beings is not restricted only to other creatures, but also includes rivers, mountains, stars, forests, trees, blades of grass, fallen sticks, the the entire seamless community of life. And let's do away with even the, quote unquote, it in what else is there but it. Just this silvery blue morning, a few ragged clouds showing up, here and there dulling the glitter of the early morning dew. And then the monk asked further, then what is a person of the Sangha? How do you live something so vast and all-inclusive? And looking back at the singular human being facing him, Juju's down, I can't get that right, I don't think, down-to-earth reply like Earth herself, gives it all away, me and you. This not too in all living beings turns up as me and you in every awakened encounter. Whether a person of feeling a river of ants at work in the kitchen counter, the moist ground under your feet when you walk out after the rains that at last extinguished, extinguished the megafire. Every moment of being manifests in relationship with the intimacy of some quote-unquote other, which is ultimately no other. Being is only interbeing. What else is there but it? <laughs> and it, I think, sums up the whole, everything you're trying to say here and yeah. get people to wake up to. It's just uh, phenomenal. I really love this, Susan. Oh, thank you, Raghu. Because that me and you, that's the intimacy of not knowing that creates you know, me and you rather than me, comma, and you. And it's almost like everything finally disappears into that and in a way. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the connectedness that is reality. And if we're not in it, we're not in reality. Yeah. Anyhow, so much in here to uh, certainly propel one's mind in different directions and maybe not as uh, the usual kind of, um, you know, sometimes we get in, in ruts many a time where, you know, that uncertainty gets lost. We are yeah. certain, we project this certainty, which is foolish, and we are proving it, aren't we? It's May, a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, about exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Anyhow, I, 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 we, there's so much more that uh, I'd love to go through. So I'm going to have to, to, to get back at you in the next months. And uh, well, I'd love to do that, Rocco. This has been most enjoyable and and a pleasure, a real pleasure for me. Oh, same here. Everybody will, of course, in the show notes on, on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. We will 
have links so that you can uh, purchase the book and find out about Susan. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I recommend everybody because it, it just, it opens up. So the, the beauty of Zen and koans is it, it takes you and opens up doorways that you might have, uh, shall we say, they've been restricted because of this propensity we have of certainty. I think. And yep. so this this is going to help, going to help you out. Okay, everybody? Uh, well, that'd be great if it did. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and there's many, many wonderful teachers and podcasts and so on. Please take advantage. And again, thank you, Susan. Thank you. See you all next week.